science and uh, most of that stuff. Um, but I've been in the field for a while and health is really uh, the thing that gets me excited, uh, not just about serious mental illness, but really working in the health of people who have serious mental and behavioral health disorders, and hopefully one day doing something about prevention of those health disorders. I'm also really excited to say that our colleague, Dory Hutchinson, is joining us from Boston University. And really, when you look back in the literature, even just talking about wellness as a concept, uh, emotional wellness or recovery wellness, let alone some of the health disparities that we see in this population, uh, you definitely will see uh, Dr. Hutchinson's work pretty early on um, in talking about some of the things that we know now drive uh, the serious health uh, and other types of dis uh, disparities that we see among people with serious mental illness. So uh, welcome, Dr. Hutchinson. Thank you, everyone. It's so nice to be here with you all. Thanks for having us. Our training module today is going to really focus on some principles of recovery and starting a discussion about the things that influence uh, recovery itself and really might affect people in terms of their participation in community activities, uh, particularly employment, but also some of the activities that support people who are successful in workforce participation and independent living. Uh, we are going to focus on these learning objectives, which are foundational principles of recovery, looking at social determinants of health and mental health. We will discuss how those really look for people with serious mental health disorders. And then we want to talk about some factors that really facilitate and also create sometimes some barriers for people with serious mental health and behavioral conditions. Um, so our topics today will really be things that I think will be review for a lot of you, depending on how long you've been in the field and your different background. I know some of you come from a more multidisciplinary background. Um, and then we'll just talk about some cases about how people recover and what their experiences are um, in terms of recovery and some of the, again, barriers and facilitators that we might see there. Um, if any time people have questions or comments, um, put them in the chat. I will try to keep up with those. I can see them. But um, again, that's the best way, I think, to communicate um, in terms of the interaction part of the presentation today. And just remember, usually, unless you're sending a direct message, everybody can generally read what you're putting in the chat. So if you're going to make a comment about any of the material or the case, that would probably be a much better strategy. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about recovery and what we see are some of the major components of what we consider recovery. This being healthy, obviously, is living in a state of recovery, having a home, some purpose, and some sense of your community. And these really flow directly from the Brass Tax Initiative at SAMHSA, which was a recovery support initiative that came out a number of years ago that really tried to give some uh, concreteness to what we mean by recovery. And I think also created an opportunity for an entity like SAMHSA as a funder to focus on some areas that would be fundamentally important, of course, to people with mental health issues, as well as people with substance use disorders. And you know, regardless of how you might characterize the types of things SAMHSA supports or funds, you do see a lot of individuals with psychiatric disabilities and other types of mental health conditions in the services expansion and the types of programs that you would see um, supported by SAMHSA. So the ideas of recovery, you know, um, have been out there, I think, aspirationally for a long time. But over the last several decades, we've really seen some, some concrete discussion of what that really would mean. Usually when we're talking about recovery, we follow some guidelines about people with disabilities. I think that's a really important conversation to have because you'll hear it in the language that we use, I think, in these presentations. And we're going to ask some questions about what kinds of language all of you use in terms of how you talk about people, whether they're clients, people with disabilities, patients, um, any of those kinds of things that um, you know help people identify who they are and what their experience is. Um, so when we consider psychiatric disability, particularly, you know, some people prefer to talk about a disability because it. It binds people with a mental health or behavioral illness to other disability groups. Having a mental illness uh, like schizophrenia or a childhood mental health disturbance like autism, these would be considered disabilities, um, like you would consider multiple sclerosis a disability. Uh, some people um, don't necessarily embrace the idea or identify so much with disability 
as they might prefer something more medically focused like mental health or mental illness. Um, what's important, I think, about whether we consider it mental illness, psychiatric disability, or a broad category like behavioral health, there are many, many, many derogatory terms that we see in the world that lead back to people who have some kind of behavioral health condition. Um, the stigma of those terms, um, the more diminished and intrinsic nature of those terms have been really, you know, again, pretty stigmatizing. What we would like to move away from is more, you know, of course, people consider them pejorative, but I also consider them like more intrinsic, you know, population kinds of terms like, you know, referring to someone as a bipolar just puts them in the monolith of, you know, characterizing their entire experience in the world as a person with bipolar. There's not even a person in that language by calling someone a schizophrenic or a bipolar or something of that nature. And so generally people want to see person, uh, person in recovery, person with mental illness, mentally ill person, um, schizophrenic person even would be preferable to some individuals than just schizophrenic. Um, when you look at some of these other terms, you start to see things based on where people are. So doctors and nurses tend to call individuals patients, not necessarily because it's a diminishing term, but typically because they're in a more institutional kind of setting, like a hospital. But some people feel there's a power dynamic between calling somebody, you know, a patient out in the world. Um, you know, would you call someone at a community mental health center a psychiatric patient? Um, maybe not. You might call them a psychiatric client or a member if you are in a clubhouse or a more, you know, recovery-oriented environment, a service recipient. But, you know, sometimes people are doing this less to pr promote stigma or to be insensitive, but sometimes it's giving you more information about where their point of contact with that individual is. That could be something that you think about in how you determine what kind of language that you might use with the person or how you might describe their experience in relationship to you as a service provider. The other thing that's come out of the disability literature is a discussion of whether person first or identity first language is really important. And this is something that I think all of us have a role in. So think about this identity. When you're an autistic person, or you say I'm a schizophrenic person, or I'm a disabled person, you're putting your disability or your identity in some kind of equity with your personhood because it defines your personhood potentially to you. Other people might say person with autism, person with schizophrenia, in terms of the person living with or it being ancillary to that person and somewhat less identifying or outside of the individual. The issue that's important about this is that there's no consistency among groups with uh, disabilities. There's certainly no consistency among individuals with psychiatric disability, and it really will come down in many cases to personal preference. So I guess I would pause here and say, is there anything in the chat um, or thoughts that some of you have that you might put in the chat that would, you know, how would you identify? How do others see this identification as being a real identity first versus a person first kind of conversation? Well, something to consider then is that Many disability groups are starting an initiative. Uh, the American Psychological Association, for example, has been involved in an initiative called Say the Word. And what people with disabilities are starting to come out with is a more identity first um, in concert with some person first flavor. Because when you say I'm a person with a disability, a lot of times then individuals may ask more invasive questions about that disability. Um, here's one. Um, in the chat, I've heard more conversations about learn, leaning into how an individual identifies instead of um, deciding what it means for them. Absolutely. Um, that's the best thing to do is to ask a person, how would you like for me to refer to you? You know, as a person with, you know, as I introduce you, how would you like me if I'm telling a person that you have a disability um, or live with a mental health condition? How would you like for me to say it? People with disabilities are starting to say the word um, because, again, that gives them the power to disclose, I am a person living with autism. 
I am an autistic person. I have MS. That way they can say or not, you know, I live with autism, I have a disability in the way that they would prefer um, and disclose that information to an individual so that they don't ask a follow-up question or feel the need to ask what then becomes a more invasive question to a person um, in terms of, well, what is your disability? This is especially important for individuals with mental health conditions because in some cases, there isn't a particular amount of visibility to an individual living, say, with a bipolar illness or living with depression or schizophrenia. Unless the person's experience of their symptoms is very dramatic at that point, sometimes those are not necessarily things that you would notice compared to a person who had a prosthetic limb replaced, who used a wheelchair, who had some other kind of mobility disorder or disability, that would be something that you could see. Or an individual who used an adaptive technology, um, such as an individual who might be deaf or a person who has visual adaptation or asks for something in Braille because um, they live with a visual disturbance um, or are blind. So, yes? I was just gonna quickly chime in and say, I, I, I loved the comment about asking the person because if we make the decision, um, we can sometimes be playing into the inherent prejudice and discrimination around the many forms of mental illness that people have. Um, and so going with identity as mental illness for some people could really be a negative experience in terms of some of the things we're gonna talk about down the road in terms of employment and education, that sort of thing. So I loved that comment, it was mm -hmm. a great one. And really important because it's so empowering to ask an individual, how do you want me to describe your experience and to give them to give you the language, you know, that they want to do it. I think it also empowers them to feel a little more trust in you because you're asking them to really define what their experience is like. So what are kinds of the words, you know, and I like to do this in other courses and people often are a little resistant because they don't want to be, you know, identified as the person who said a really negative thing. So I guess I just want to say that this is a safe space. And some of the things we hear about people with mental illness and the attributions that we hear are the kinds of things that can really create barriers to engagement. And I will say in the time that I've spent in this type of work, even among people with disabilities, there's sometimes some separation away from other disabilities with people who might have a psychiatric or a behavioral type of experience. The example I would give you is that for many years, I worked in the HIV community doing um, services interventions with people living with HIV, particularly um, medication adherence interventions. As I'm old, these were in the 90s, but they, you know, these are valuable and still rudimentary things to you know, success and recovery for HIV. When we started to introduce the idea that there might be anxiety related to living with HIV, it's scary. It might be depressing to live with HIV. Studies have actually shown a lot of viruses create a depressive kind of experience for the brain or just, you know, you have to live with a chronic health condition. But when we introduced these ideas of depression and anxiety among that community, many people were like, hey, Dr. Lisa, I love you, but I'm not crazy, frankly. I'm just living with this HIV issue. And so there was a lot of reticence for people for a long time until they discovered that many of these mental health experiences were really common um, and really important to treat in terms of medical wellness and emotional wellness along with HIV. So what are some of the things that you all hear in your services programs about how we talk about and how we refer to people with mental illnesses? Yep, so there's some in the chat like crazy, which is a real, you know, we hear that a lot. Neurodiverse, I think is a more, you know, a more common contemporary term, neurodiversity. Neurotypicality is one you hear, that's a great term. Disorganization, yep, people really, you know, that can be really frustrating when you're working with somebody, especially around something like work. Yeah, psycho. Especially after Halloween, you get a lot of psycho. Yes, it, we should not use crazy. That's, it's a terrible and very stigmatizing word. Lunacy is a word that's been associated with mental illness, you know, not all there. 
Well, and some of these are really coming across, you know, said borderline, you know, that's a personality disorder. And whenever we talk about people, you know, if anyone's manipulative, we, you know, are they borderline? Do they have a personality effect? Um, sociopath is something we hear a lot. That's also a personality type of effect. Um, you know, people are manic. Um, one of the things that um, I've experienced with the medical students that we teach at the University of Illinois um, is this kind of characterization of normative behaviors as pathological. Like when a student might say something like, oh, you know, I'm so OCD that I spent so much time doing a thing. Um, or, you know, that person's behavior is just so schizophrenic sometimes. Um, those characterizations can sometimes really diminish um, the level of disability that people have. Um, and so we could really be sensitive to that. I also really like this comment from one of your, your colleagues about those people, because it's like, we're not one of them. Um, we're not of them. Um, and what I find so fascinating about that is when you ask people, you know, like I've never lived with cancer as a human, I can tell you that. So I don't know what it would be like to be told that diagnosis or to participate in that kind of care. I've never been a person who isn't able to walk on my own, thank goodness, so far, let's say. I don't use a wheelchair, I have that experience. But I can tell you, I've been anxious in my life. I've been depressed in my life. Um, I've experienced grief of, you know, death of a parent or a family member. Almost everyone can, at some level, experience or relate to some of the emotional experiences that people with behavioral issues have. Whether or not you've experienced psychosis, most of us have felt anxious. Most of us have felt depressed, but, you know, characterizing us as those people versus us, it's a degree of um, intensity about what people experience. Another comment that just came in about, you know, the attributions we might make about people in recovery is that they're unreliable, which is a real issue and probably something as we speak more in, um, in the modules and we move along. I think is going to be really relevant to our discussion of employment because that's often an attribute in some cases, false attribute that a lot of employers make about people with serious mental illness. And I'd say also just in general about people with disabilities. These are such great comments, so keep them coming. Um, so let's talk a little bit about social determinants of health um, because there's gonna be a really important one that we're gonna address in our work uh, together over these next few weeks. And so, Healthy People 2030 is a large federal initiative that cross-cuts the Department of Health and Human Services, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It also is a little bit influenced by the World Health Organization's Global Health Initiative. But, you know, here, the new initiative that was launched a year ago or so in 2020 is really foundationally talking about all of these aspects of people's lives. And I think what's interesting in here is that you see work um, and learning right in the center of these kinds of determinants that can affect us. And learning, I think, particularly because it's developmental, it happens you know, across the lifespan, but also learning is very much related to what we do in our employment um, and you know, our, our best trajectory, we might say, for employment. And so to look at work and education is in isolation as social determinants of health really does limit the dramatic influence that both of those things are going to have. So um, as we look at these determinants, you can see that there are five big domains and two of them I think um, are particularly important. One is access obviously to education quality and economic stability. Um, and those are two foundational things that we see in the major domains for Healthy People 2030. The other things you see are, of course, do you have access to healthcare quality and just your, you know, fundamental wellness medically and mentally as a human being? Um, what neighborhoods are you in and what built environment are you in? Um, are you in a neighborhood that even has an emergency department? Does it have a hospital? Um, if not, what would be your first point of contact for um, 
you know, healthcare access. So those two things are going to often be different. Um, you're going to see, you know, more economic instability probably in those neighborhoods. And then obviously our social contexts, are we isolated? Um, you know, we've seen just anecdotally the importance of social and community context over this year or these years in the pandemic and how isolation and some of these other factors from the pandemic have affected probably every single one of these social determinants in a fundamental way. We know it's you know affected our community context and our neighborhoods. And I think all of us would probably agree that our education systems have changed and economic stability um, is not so, you know, is vulnerable. Um, the healthcare quality and access in these times of COVID probably goes without saying. So if we look at some of these individually, um, it's really important to consider where there are limitations. And I think many of the populations that all of you would work with individuals who are homeless, individuals not in the workforce, individuals very vulnerable in their community, um, they're going to be, you know, a dramatic number of the one in 10 people who don't have any real form of health insurance. When we don't have insurance, not only does that limit our access to health care in general, just from a where do we go perspective, but it really limits also some of your options in terms of what we would consider evidence-based practice and preventative health. Do we get screening tests? Um, an anecdote I can tell you from my work at the Community Mental Health Center is that we're doing a study of peer health navigators with um, some investigators at the Illinois Institute of Technology. One of the peer health navigators recently took an individual with mental health conditions to the first eye appointment that this individual has ever had in 54 years. So it's a 54 year old individual. I think she lives with major depressive illness. Um, she also lives with sickle cell illness in this particular case. What's dramatic about that is never having had an eye exam in 54 years is that um, people who live with sickle cell are individuals who are prone to retinopathy and other kinds of visual disturbances like you might see in an individual with diabetes. And so again, just by nature of her initial disability, her access to healthcare, um, she has, you know, progressing illnesses that in many other communities, you would not necessarily see advancing maybe at the same rate. So um, the five domains listed apply to community service. Um, from one of your comments, excellent comment. Um, when we look at economic stability, poverty cannot be underestimated. One of the things that we see across Every illness, whether it's a mental illness, whether it's a metabolic illness like diabetes, cardiac illnesses, people who live in poverty are just not as healthy across the board. Um, other things like race and gender will sometimes not be as dramatic when you look at poverty. So if you were to compare people you know, on a particular item like income, you might see the impact of it, not only from their ability to have health insurance, to purchase health insurance, which goes back to the initial, you know, do you have medical care, but how well are you able to support yourself and can you thrive? Economic stability means you always have the idea that you'll have enough money to pay the rent, you'll have enough food to put on the table, you would have a little cushion, even a tiny one, if something were to happen with your health, and without those kinds of things, without those ideas of instability in those areas, people can become really anxious. And the stress and the worry can actually also lead to emotional disturbance and sometimes health conditions. What's really important is that when we look at some of the evidence-based practices, particularly in mental health and the ones we're going to talk about here, these are programs that not only have affected um, individuals' recovery in terms of feelings of recovery, quality of life ratings, social support ratings, but we also see their health and well-being generally improve when people participate in the workforce. So an evidence-based practice like individual placement and support, or IPS as we like to call it, isn't just going to help a person get a job and make money. That's going to lead to them having more housing stability. That might lead to them eating better. That might lead to them having more of the, you know, if they need a medication that they don't take regularly because they can't afford it. Maybe they'll take it more regularly. Maybe they're able to afford to buy 
a better diabetes testing strip that would allow them to monitor their diabetes more regularly, or they'll do it every day instead of doing it every other day or every third day. So again, the economic influence in these health domains is really something to consider. Education access and quality is something that people identify across the board. This is particularly important developmentally among individuals who are still developmentally considered children. Uh, the, you know, and you can ask different agencies. I think the CDC considers you a child until you're maybe 25 or a young adult. But you know, we're talking typically among people here who are young children. Certainly, you could look at the effect of adverse events even from infancy. But when we call something an adverse childhood event or an ACE, as we like to discuss them, these are typically things that we would consider traumatic or stress-inducing or things that would have not only an emotional effect on a young developing person, but studies have actually shown a neurological effect on individuals um, who are developing. And so the ACEs, you know, in terms of studying them, uh, I think they've identified 18 different things, including, you know, witnessing a divorce in your family, having a parent who's alcoholic, having, you know, not enough food in the house. And sometimes these are not things that are, you know, outright or direct violence toward a child. But again, if you live in poverty and you can't put enough food on the table, it's not that you intend for your child to experience food insecurity, but your child and you, for that matter, might be experiencing food insecurity. What we see is not only does this affect individuals' performance in school, developmentally, you know, again, a big cognitive space for kids, but also a big social space for kids, but this chronic stress in childhood leads to things like heart disease, diabetes, um, anxiety, depression, early engagement in unprotected sexual activity, earlier um, parenthood for both males and females. They do track it both as, you know, um, young men who have infants out of wedlock, not just young women, um, and health conditions into adulthood because of the impact of the ACEs. Our built environments are becoming more and more influential. Um, the example that I've typically given people is, you know, how safe do you feel going and turning on your tap water and pouring a glass of water from that tap and drinking it in the morning? So if you were to ask me that in Chicago, I might have a very, very different answer for you than if I lived in Flint, Michigan, or if I lived someplace else where potable water, for example, is not necessarily available to people. So it's things like that. Um, do you have an emergency department? Um, what if you, you know, were in an automobile accident? Where is the closest environment? Neighborhood and built environment is not just going to affect healthcare, but it's also going to be things like pollutants, um, the quality of housing, the quality of food sources, the exposure to violence. Many of the things here, again, that you would see uh, in built environment can also overlap into things like um, those adverse childhood experiences, homelessness, um, things like that. And any of you working in homelessness will know um, the influence of not having, you know, a structured place to be, a place to really um, set yourself down, or a place to engage in any kind of health promoting activity. I work with an individual here in uh, Chicago who is in charge of homeless services, and one of the things that he's trying to work with people um, on is how can a lot of these aging uh, individuals who are homeless who need colonoscopies, where would they even do the prep for a colonoscopy? which would be a pretty inhumane ask for someone who's living in a shelter. And then finally, our social context, which is how much do we see people and how does isolation affect us? Um, employment, I will say, as time is going on here, is probably one of the fundamental things that we need to talk about in terms of social and community context. A really wise person once told me that, you know, children go to school, but adults go to work. And so one of the hardest things about recovering is having resources, having the structure. And again, how can you get dressed for work in the morning and be ready, be rested if you don't have a home, if you are in a shelter, um, if you are struggling with a disability that creates cognitive disorganization that might, you know, have some other kinds of effect in terms of your experience. And so social community context is 
really important and probably one of the foundational things that recovery-oriented mental health centers really focus on is giving individuals not only a place to come for medical and mental health recovery, but to come for the social recovery um, and, you know, to help connect people um, and help them feel like they have a network of individuals that they can turn to. So, again, just to review these social determinants, you know, you can also consider them at a really granular level. Things like, is there transportation? Um, two that are really important, obviously, in the green are the education, job opportunities, and consistent income. But also, do you have an experience of mental illness or chronic health or medical condition? What we learn now is that having a mental health condition in and of itself can be a social determinant of health. And really, there are some social determinants of mental health. Um, I think we talked about most of these things in terms of inequity, like the example of, you know, healthy foods available at stores. Um, how does access to healthy food promote better choices? Um, you know, people have told me um, in community mental health that they prefer that, you know, clients or even homeless people don't get gift certificates to fast food places. Um, some people argue that, you know, is that worse for them than trying to have them eat out of, you know, a public space like a trash can or eat whatever they find along the streets? So it's a really complicated question, but it feeds in, I think, as all of us would probably admit to a much broader picture. Um, and then, you know, again, just to talk about these aims, about what we're trying to address, I think it's important for us to approach all five of these, as one of your colleagues said, you know, from all these perspectives and not necessarily look at any single one of these things um, just in isolation. So let's do that. Um, one of the things that we see is that all of them really map to what are the health services the CDC says that we should be focusing on. And when you look at health equity, not only do we have things over like, you know, assessment and things like that, but we have things that, you know, help us support communities and promote community development in areas where, you know, we don't just say, hey, we need more affordable housing in your neighborhood for lower income people. Hey, we need more affordable or decent shelters for people who are homeless or undomiciled in your area. Um, okay, how do we do that? How do we finance that? And how do we build that? And that's the bridge that I think most people are looking to cross. And I think that's what the CDC is certainly suggesting here, because it's not just suggesting make a policy. Well, make a policy, but then you're going to have to build a bricks and mortar event or thing. Then you're going to have to have a workforce that actually is skilled enough to staff and carry out that thing. And then you should probably come back and evaluate whether or not it's working, and not only for is it working, but for whom. And what's often most important for researchers is they will ask a question about for whom things are working, but probably the more interesting question for many service providers is to figure out what things are not working because we can provide all the services in the world, but if people aren't responsive and benefiting from those services, we probably should go back and ask them what are the kinds of things they need so that they would. So here are the 10 areas from the CDC and the essence of time. Um, I will just move over them. But, you know, again, regulatory assessment, assurance of a workforce. Um, and really, these are aligned to build health equity. And what's most important about this health equity is they see that within the context of having access to good jobs and fair pay. And without that kind of equity, you're not going to have the ability to access healthcare or afford all the healthcare that you're going to need. You're also not necessarily going to be able to live in a place that's going to allow you to maintain employment or maintain some form of work participation. And so the circular nature of being well and living safely and going back to work and then work continuing to facilitate that spiral is really something to consider not only in terms of people, but in terms of the different things that people bring in um, for their own social determinants. Okay, so what are those social determinants of recovery? Well, probably if you didn't get that flavor from me yet, I think it's fair to say that my position is that mental health is a public health necessity. Um, when we look at the data on the slide, one of the things that's most important 
is that over the last few years, public health entities are starting to see the dramatic impact of mental health and mental illness on healthcare systems. I will tell you that the last 18 to 24 months of living with COVID-19, if these public health departments were not initially aware of these influences, I would say that they're available, they're aware of them now, um, probably dramatically aware of them. Even before COVID, one of the most important social determinants of mental health or health predicting emergency department visits, as many of you may probably know, is being mentally ill or being an individual with a psychiatric illness. Um, being homeless, I would say, if we looked within that population, probably would even increase the number of individuals who used emergency departments. In my local area, which is what I tend to stick with, so I don't speak you know, incorrectly, that's costing about $2,200 a visit. And what's important is that most of these visits we're learning do not turn into psychiatric or medical admissions. They end up being something um, a little acute, like um, a blood pressure check or checking an A1C or some wound care or many other things that people see, which an emergency department, as most of you know, is designed to provide short-term care, get you back on or fix a critical thing, um, or they're probably going to admit you for a larger problem. And unfortunately, we're not necessarily seeing those admissions. The other thing that I can tell you, though, is that when you look at factors that influence 30-day uh, rehospitalizations, for example, if an individual has a medical hospitalization and they are discharged for a medical reason, the most likely reason that they will come back within a 30-day window, which is you know, what most care providers are tracking, is that they did not get supportive mental health services. Um, engaging in outpatient mental health services in the community is the number one predictor of keeping people out of the hospital after 30 days for a medically related um, admission. And so we not only see the dramatic influence on mental illness, but we also see the dramatic influence um, on physical health itself. So when we look at our mental health system, here are some of the things that people are talking about in terms of driving determinants of mental health and engagement in mental health care. And mental health stigma, as many of you talked about in the language that we use, is you know, really common. And I'd invite all of you to think about and to look for mental health stigma in your own life. I, I admit I have a life and Dory can vouch for me, but I see it every day. I see some form of mental health stigma either in language or in a visual thing or in just the ways that people talk about different things like, wow, I had the craziest day or something where, you know, they're not necessarily mindful of the way that they would use language. Or again, they, um, you know, make a caricature out of, you know, things like being OCD or, you know, people just, you know, using those symptom symptomatology words as, as adjectives when in fact those are serious experiences that sometimes people really don't have a lot of control over. If you're interested in stigma and you want to read more about stigma, I would recommend, I will put this in the chat as I'm talking, but there is a researcher at IIT whose name is um, Patrick Corrigan, and he edits the journal in this regard, and um, he has published a great deal about the influence of mental health stigma, not only in health, in health inequity, in employment inequity, um, and others, including um, Dory's colleagues and the Boston University Center have published pervasively on how workforce stigma, workplace stigma is a real barrier to people uh, with mental illness being able to participate fully in the workforce. We see this a bunch of different ways. Um, our own perceptions, our experiences, um, you know, how we internalize things and what we anticipate from people. Um, you know, when you think about some of the ways that we look at mental health stigma, we also could apply these to how we experience stigma for people with disabilities. You know, they would tell you they have their perceptions of things, what they experience on a day-to-day -day basis, um, how that makes them feel internally, and then, you know, as they negotiate the world. So think about a person going on a job interview and not having been in the workforce for maybe a while. 
how would their stigma, how would stigma of mental illness maybe affect them going into that, that job interview? Would they worry, anticipate that someone is going to know something about them? Um, are they going to feel like I can't do it? This is going to be too hard for me. That kind of internalized stigma that the job interview, they're going to ask them stuff they won't know or they won't know how to answer. Um, and those are all things, you know, that we bring to the table as individuals and uh, in many walks of our lives, whether or not we have a mental health disorder, but we all feel these kinds of, you know, threats and vulnerabilities, but they can be much harder and much more influential for people in recovery. The other thing that we note and has become very well defined in these public health studies is that there is an element of systemic racism that we see in mental health systems. Um, I think the most important thing to consider is that, you know, there are basically, what is it, 900 counties in the United States in the last year and a half have identified racism as a public health emergency, not just in mental illness, but in economic opportunity in all five of those domains that you would see in the Healthy People 2030, neighborhood capacities, social networking, healthcare access. All five of those healthy people, 2030 things are going to be dramatically influenced to the negative in many of these communities where you're going to see health inequities, um, which can be tracked back not only to ethnic diversity, um, but also inclusion and in access, I think. And certainly, I think poverty is going to be a covariate. Um, you know, here are some examples of where we see systemic racism in. Um, more, you know, policy or in provider-oriented things, um, disincentives to people um, in different kinds of payments. These not only are going to affect more people of color, but they're certainly always going to affect more people who live in poverty. Access to psychiatric care and services was something that I wanted to speak to all of you about as, you know, this kind of introductory module, because all of you, I wanted to take a moment are the most valuable people in the workforce. I don't know where you are, all of you individually. I know you work in this partnership. I think it's amazing. But I wanna just thank you for being part of the workforce right now, because when we look at the kinds of statistics that we see for access to services, it's not just where the services are, it's whether or not there are any providers to actually deliver these kinds of services. And so we see not only the impact to access and poverty, but we also see um, things like where are the mental health providers? Psychiatrists, psychiatric nurses, case managers, social work, all of you psychologists um, have decreased. We actually are talking about things now called psychiatry deserts. And I never in my days thought we'd talk about psychiatry deserts, but um, if you're in child or adolescent psychiatry, I'm speaking your language because there are even fewer individuals with mental health specialty care um, that have developmental knowledge about child and adolescence. Um, more in first episode, uh, psychosis types of programs, but this is something that people are speaking about. Um, the other thing that's important about workforce shortages is that, um, you know, the gaps in the health professionals are creating an environment where there aren't even enough payers necessarily to support people. So the one that I wanted to get here too is to talk a little bit about, and someone asked me a question about COVID and I will say a little bit more about that. Um, California, for example, where I think the majority of you are, I think ranks 26 out of providing um, or having enough mental health providers to actually address the needs of your state based on the population that you have. Um, I think you need something like 2,000 more mental health providers in order to actually have enough providers to the population that you have. For the individual who asked the question about COVID, absolutely yes. The COVID epidemic has made mental health shortages worse, um, not only because some providers have had to quarantine, providers have had been sick themselves, um, some providers have elected that they don't, you know, want exposures either for their elderly family member, a child, whatever their personal reasons are, but it has definitely affected the workforce shortage. The other end of that workforce shortage is 
COVID has absolutely accelerated anxiety and depression among people, the population of people. The other thing COVID has done is not only have there been a dramatic number of fatalities from COVID, but on the good side, there have been a dramatic number of survivors of COVID. And what we're learning now that we've studied those individuals for a long enough time, they have long-term cognitive um, types of disruptions. They have neurological illnesses related to their experience, not everyone, but many of them. Um, and so there are neurological, long-standing neuropsychological and psychiatric complications of COVID, which have brought more neurology, more patients into neurology and more anxiety and depression into psychiatry. So we already had a workforce shortage in psychiatry. COVID is a little bit like gasoline on that fire because it created more mental health experience, um, even in the general population. And so the workforce shortage just continues to be dramatic. So here's your challenge. Um, you got to address these areas, these behavioral factors, life stressors, ACEs, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the experience of people that you know are not monolithic. You know, you can't consider that a community that is African American is going to have the same diversity, equity, and inclusion experience as a community that identifies as Latino or Korean or some other type of you know potentially non-white or non-Caucasian type of identity. And then the extent to it, mental illness and substance use um, become a part of that community um, and those kinds of things. Um, so I think that's something to consider. Um, yeah, one thing is someone saying that um, many people are more working remotely. There's been a lot more telehealth during COVID. And so while that's still connected people um, there's still some isolation there. And actually, a lot of people in the workforce are feeling isolated um, from their colleagues. Um, the other workforce I think I just want to mention, not only yourselves as community workers and, you know, first responding type people, but that's our healthcare system and the mental and emotional health of our medical nursing and healthcare providers um, has also been dramatically hit because of what they've been under for all these months. So I want you to think about some combined effects between this week and next week, and maybe, you know, we can pick up next week with a discussion of these things, but think about the interaction between how maybe depression and stress could impact an illness like renal failure. How could those symptoms, you know, exacerbate that experience, you know, for a person? So I thought about it a little bit like this. And again, we could maybe revisit this at the top of the discussion next week. But how it could affect a person is, you know, if you have to go to dialysis, especially during COVID, might be really hard for you to get there. Um, those things, you know, progress to you having depression. Depression is considered by the World Health Organization the number one disabling condition worldwide. That includes young adults as young as 12 to 16 or 18 and individuals from 18 to 65 years old. And it's moved in front of things like heart disease and all these other kinds of things. And you will find pockets. Um, so for example, in the United States, while anxiety is actually now the most prevalent mental disorder, depression is the most common one. And depression is actually the most common comorbidity with every medical illness as many as 48% of people with HIV continue to live with what would be considered clinically relevant to depression. When you're depressed, you don't wanna do anything. Do you really wanna get up and get dressed and go out during COVID and go to dialysis, which can be a long and sometimes, you know, uncomfortable procedure. So the person might not be engaging so much in the treatment they need for their renal failure, because of all of the mood and the feelings and some of the barriers that that individual might experience along the way. Another one to consider is something like anxiety and stress and whether it's related to asthma and respiratory challenges. We see this a lot in patients because or individuals, I should say, community mental health. But when we work with them in our medical clinics, one of the things that we're not only monitoring is, okay, you have medications for your mental health, You've also got medications that you need to take for respiratory or any other host of conditions. 
I can tell you, and most of you probably could say the same, um, in mental health centers that we work with, individuals don't have one medical condition, like just asthma. They have three, probably asthma, probably diabetes. They also might be overweight or have, you know, a heart disease. And then they live with a type of mental health issue. And so that's really three or four major kinds of illnesses that on their own would be hard. But then again, as you can see in some of the points here, get all wrapped up into one another. So we have some references for all of you that we included here. And um, if any of you, I wanted to just make a, a quick statement, are interested in any of these papers or any of the resources that we have, I can make them available to you. Um, but again, some people don't wanna read all that stuff, but it is available to you if at some point you would like to read something. So I know we're right at the top of the hour and I appreciate everybody hanging in with me. Dory, anything you wanna add here as we kind of get some final thoughts? I'm good right now, Elise. Thank you. It was great. It's very comprehensive. So there's a great question here about how communities um, can address stigma for people with disabilities. Communities as allies, yes. It's a great and, comment. Yeah. I, I I I can comment a little bit on that. We we do my center's doing so much work on this whole issue of stigma, prejudice, and discrimination, and really looking at stigma as something that gets internalized because of constant prejudice and discrimination um, and impacts people to Lisa's um, uh, course today impacts people's health so dramatically. And, you know, there, we hear a lot, I think, oh, the stigma is getting so much better. Um, and I would actually argue that it's not. Um, I think at what has happened is it's kind of gone underground a little bit. It's become more pervasive through practices and policies. And this comment about community spaces is a great example of that, where we're not coming out and saying, oh no, these people can't be here, but there may be policies and challenges for people to access these spaces um, that keep those people out, as someone commented in the language earlier on. Um, so I think what we've seen is that people have found different ways of, of keeping people with serious mental illnesses and particularly the homeless and people who are right on the edge of almost being housed out, out of so many places and spaces and environments where they could actually begin to, to heal and move forward. Um, so it, it's, we even see it in our own healthcare system, right? So many people can't even access mental health services. Um, so I'll stop there. Thank you all for your time and your thoughtful comments.